Well, good morning, everyone. If you could, the passage that we'll be going over today, this morning, you can turn in your Bibles or swipe on your phone to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. If you don't know where James is, it's towards the back of your Bible in the New Testament. Also, you can flip to the table of contents in the front and just go down the list and find James and go from there. As Pastor Joel just mentioned, uh, I, I moved here to uh, Sandtown. My wife and I, we live on the corner of Pressman and Stricker. My wife has lived there for about 10 years. She's a Baltimore City school teacher, so she knows a lot of kids in the, in the neighborhood. She's taught most of them, and she's actually taught a, a few of the drug dealers there. And so last year, I've been trying to get to know some of the drug dealers during the good, good weather. And uh, you know, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm not from the city. I'm from the country, still from Maryland, but from the country area. And uh, one, of the, one of the connecting points I made with the guys is uh, gaming. And so I'm a big gamer, not so much after being married, and so it's really non-existent now with Titus having a son. But every once in a while, I get to game with the guys. I either I invite them over to the house, or I bring out my PlayStation out on the corner there and just play with them. Uh, but then also, one thing to get used to, definitely it seems more so here in Baltimore, is, uh, man, there's a lot of trash talking about everything. <laughs> definitely about gaming, definitely about your skills. And I'm a horrible trash talker. Uh, <laughs> For, for a number of different reasons. One is that I'm generally a pretty quiet guy. Like, like I don't talk much. Uh, and the two, I just don't have the verbal skill to just throw it out there like that, you know? And so uh, sometimes when we play video games, we have trash talk. And uh, I generally stick with Madden because I'm, I'm pretty good at Madden. NBA 2K, I'm, I'm horrible at. It's, it's, it's a basketball game. And so, but uh, I forget how it happened, but Maybe, again, I forget how it happened, but maybe during one of the games, they were trash talking. I said, all right, well, uh, let's fight. <laughs> this guy, he rarely talks, says, let's fight, you know? Uh, but again, I don't know how it happened. It probably didn't happen that way. But uh, I have a bag full of boxing equipment, full of gloves, headgear. And actually, I used to box in college. So I so went to a college not too far from here in Annapolis. It's like a military slash engineering school. And so I was like, all right, you know, let's fight. Now, most of the guys that I hang out with on the corner, you know, they're not in my weight class, all right? There's only one guy who's like my size, and he's more than willing to fight. So, <laughs> so we went and duked it out and everything, but it was fun. And so, but then I get some of the other guys to say, hey, you know, let's, let's challenge each other to like, you know, learn the skill of fighting, which some of them are, you know, totally used to. Uh, but, it, but the whole idea is that when everybody's watching them, putting on the gloves, fighting, kind of gets unnerving. And, you know, right before the fight, you know, they would talk a whole bunch of trash. But when they're in there, in the so-called ring, you know, you got the pressure, you got people watching. What if I mess up? I really don't actually know how to box. I really don't actually don't know how to fight. And it's really a primal feeling, you know. And, and, and this will go with anybody, anybody who puts on gloves, right? It's a very primal feeling. It doesn't matter even if you uh, grew up in a city or did not. Uh, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to fight or flight. And actually, most people probably tend to flight until you've actually trained yourself how to handle yourself in that situation. So with that thought in mind, talking about, you know, what people say, your words, and then your actions, you know, when it comes down to the truth of the things, let's uh, read James chapter 2. 
Starting at verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So this passage that we just read this morning, throughout church history, has been a very controversial passage. So, so why has it been so controversial? It's because James, it seems like on the surface, James is talking about salvation equals faith plus works. But we know the Apostle Paul, throughout his writings, and he wrote most of the New Testament, many New Covenant, the Apostle Paul makes clear that we are saved by grace, through faith. Grace meaning You've been given a gift, you've been given a, a reward, you've been given something that you yourself did not earn. So just by the very definition of grace, you can't earn it. And so if we've been saved by grace through faith, then, then what is James talking about here regarding works? Now, in our modern vernacular, you can substitute faith with trust. Faith with trust. So I'll probably just stick with faith, but it might be easier to understand faith as trust, because trust, just by its very definition, kind of has something along with it that you actually do what you believe. So if I trust you guys with my keys to, to my house, I would actually give you the keys to my house. That is actually why none of you have the keys to my house. All right? That's why I'm up here on stage. I trust this stage will hold me up. Therefore... I'm up here, otherwise I wouldn't. And James, what he's, as, as we study here, James really believes that we are saved by grace through faith. It's just that that faith never remains alone. We are faith, saved through faith alone, but that faith never remains alone. What we truly believe comes out in the way we live our lives, what we do. What we truly, truly believe, it shows fruit in how we live. You see, James, back then, was fighting a very prevalent thought, idea, and it's still true today, it's very popular, where, yes, you can believe in Jesus Christ, yes, you can believe in God, but really you can, believe, you can actually live out however you want, live life however you want. 
as long as you believe and say that Jesus Christ is Lord, you can do whatever you want. And so James here is fighting that idea, fighting that thought. So James uses two examples to kind of illustrate this false dichotomy with faith and actions. And so the first example he gives is, let's say you come across a person in need. This person in need is very visible. Either they lack clothing or you know that they're hungry. But let's just say you know this person, right? And you know what they're going through in life, whether it be physical need, emotional need. And then James goes even further to bring it home, and he says that this person is a brother or sister, meaning they're a fellow believer. So it's really closer to you, right? And so this person comes up, and you kind of want to encourage this person. You want to help this person through the tough period of time that they're going through. So you think to yourself, oh, I've got a pretty good idea. I'll go up to this person, shake their hand, and you say, God bless you. I hope God will meet your needs. I've been praying for you. And then you walk away. And as you walk away, you kind of pat yourself on the back, and you think, man, I really made a difference in this person's life. I'm making a mark for the kingdom of God. James is saying, whoa, whoa, time out here, time out, time out. You actually did nothing. That prayer that you've been praying for this person, you literally were the answer to that prayer, but yet you didn't do anything. What does that mean with the words you said and then your actions? He, he kind of highlights two things with this example. The first is this. Did you really mean what you said? God bless you. I've been praying for you. I hope he meets your needs when you yourself could have met those needs through God. Did you really mean what you said? Also, did what you say impact the person's life? The person is still the same. And so he's just using this as an example for our faith, right? So for our faith, as relates to Jesus Christ, when you say that you're a Christian, do you actually commune with the body of Christ Sundays or throughout the week? When you say that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, do you actually follow the teachings of Jesus Christ? When you say that you love God, do you actually spend time talking to God in prayer or even listening to him through his word? Do, do you do that at all? I mean, I understand there's, you know, ebbs and flows in daily life, weekly life, etc. But, but do you do those things at all in your life, but yet you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian? He shows us there's a direct relationship between what you say and what you do. Jesus kind of gives this story, talks about this man who was walking along a road. He gets beaten and robbed and left for dead. A couple of people come by him. One person, a priest, someone who would expect would help him out, just totally walks by the guy. Anyways, later on, another guy comes by, and Jesus says he had compassion on this man. He had compassion. So he stepped over his body and went around about his way. I mean, that's not how the story goes, right? Because he had compassion, he helped him out. You know, if anyone knows a scripture, a Bible verse, you know, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you've been in a faith or not, you know, around it, everybody knows John 3.16. I know you guys know it, so don't finish it for me, but for God so loved the world, 
right? <laughs> that he wished there was another way, you know? For God so loved the world that he wished there was another way. That's, that's, that's exactly not how the scripture goes. For God so loved the world that he did something. He gave his only son, right? So, so what am I really getting at here? My son Titus, have I tell you that I love him. Even though he's encroaching on my video game time. I, I love the kid, right? I love him, but you don't see me play with him. You don't see me spend time with him. I don't provide for him. I don't even discipline him, like, at all. <laughs> you guys may even think about that if he makes noise during service. But I don't do any of those things with him. You would question my love for him, and, and rightfully so, right? Because love itself, it displays itself in some sort of action. I remember back in the day, uh, when I was a younger teenager, stuff like that, I used to listen to DC Talk a lot. They, they had this song called Lo Love is a Verb, right? Kind of like love shows itself through action. So does faith. That's what James is getting at. James uses a second example. The example is this. Let's say you say that you believe in God. You believe that God rules over all and that he's one. That's pretty good. That's a good start. But guess what? Even the demons believe that God is one. What, what is he getting at? Actually, the words that James uses kind of harkens back to the uh, Shema of Israel. That's, that's a prayer, the prayer that the ancient Israelites used to pray. It actually goes back all the way to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema starts off by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he goes on further. Well, James is, James is really speaking to the majority in his letter are actually Jewish converts, Jewish Christians. And he's using this for a reason. And I know many of you guys believe that God is one. That is a theological truth. That is true. That is reality. But, but does that go beyond that for you? A few weeks ago, Joel was pre preaching from Luke chapter 8. In that passage, there's a story of Jesus and his disciples. They come to this graveyard where this man lives, and this man is demon-possessed by many demons. And this man runs up to Jesus, and like, what does he say to Jesus? It's the first time this man sees Jesus. And this demon, through the man, says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Let me read this again. This demon runs up to Jesus and he says, What have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. See, even Satan and his demonic host know who Jesus is. They know that he has full authority, full power. They recognize him. But, but what's the difference? They, they know this truth. They know this reality. The difference is, is that they are completely against this reality. They're completely opposed to this truth. When it comes to our profession of faith, do we do the same thing? Do we recognize the authority that God has in our life and over this world? 
But yet, we're doing one of two things. Either we are constantly running away from God, or we are constantly attacking him. If I may come across something like this, you may think or say to yourself, could God ever forgive me of my sins? I don't think he can. They're too heinous, too dark, too secret. So therefore, you run away from God. Or you might say, there's so much pain and suffering in this world, therefore God is unjust, and the God of this Bible is untrue. Or you might say to yourself, the God I know is a loving God. He will accept everyone into his arms, regardless of repentance. Do you find yourself constantly running away from God or attacking him with different questions? Now, what I'm not saying is that it's not okay to wrestle with the Bible. It's not okay to wrestle with God. It's not okay to wrestle with questions about this life. Wrestling with those things is a good thing. It helps you go deeper into God's word. It helps you commune with those saints, those people who are sitting right next to you. It makes you go deeper in prayer. It's okay to question. It's okay to have questions. But all those questions driving you towards God or those questions driving you away from God? And you might wind up saying, yeah, sure, sure, there is a God, but he has no authority in my life. Now, now it's very interesting. James, the author of this book, it's very interesting to know about his life. So James is actually the brother of Jesus Christ. Half-brother, right? And so, all growing up, he, he had been around Jesus. But he was not one of the 12 disciples. He was not a follower of Jesus during his ministry here on earth. As a matter of fact, he didn't believe a word Jesus said about his divinity. <laughs> he didn't believe him at all. He was like, yeah, he is my brother, but he's, he's only that. It wasn't until... James encountered the resurrected Christ. He said, wow, <laughs> he is divine. He is God. He is Lord and Savior of my life. Lord meaning he sits on a throne of my heart. He has authority in my life. Savior meaning he's the only way that I can be accepted by God. So James himself knows a thing or two about questions to wrestle with. Because he himself wrestled with questions and doubt. The message that James is getting across here, and please take this home. If you hear anything else, hear this message that James is saying. He's saying that what you truly believe about God in your relationship to him will show fruit in how you live your life. It's truth. What you truly believe about God and what you truly believe about your relationship to him will definitely show fruit in how you live your life. Now, James, he follows up these two examples of bad faith with two examples of good faith. He talks about Abraham. He's kind of like the patriarch of our faith, right? So back in the Old Testament, Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham. He makes a promise to Abraham saying that you will have a son, a son of promise. And through this son, you will be the father of many nations. You will have many blessings, or you will be a blessing to this earth through your son, a son even in your old age. So Abraham and his wife, later on, Sarah, 
they, they have this son, Isaac. And as Isaac grows up, God, God says something else to Abraham. He says, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Now, it doesn't really go through this in detail in the Bible, but I'm sure Abraham is wondering, well, well what's going on here, you know? First, you made this promise about this future blessing, and now you're asking me to do something that's contradictory. It seems like it's in opposition to what your earlier promise was. And we know that God can't lie. He can't renege on what he said. But then also, what God is saying to Abraham at this moment is, is it calls him, Abraham himself, great pain and great suffering, great heartache. Are, are you serious, God? Are you going to put me through this? Why? 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 What's the point? But yet, what we read in Genesis is that he actually, Genesis chapter 22, he actually goes through with this. In Hebrews 11, the book just before James, Hebrews 11, it talks about that Abraham, he believed God, he trusted God, he had faith in God, and he believed that even if his son Isaac were to die, that God himself would raise him back to life. I mean, that's a great foreshadowing of God the Father with his son Jesus Christ and the cross, right? paying a sacrifice of being raised back to life. So this story of Abraham shows an active faith. Whenever we, we, have, we trust God, it's an active faith. We actually move upon it. And then James also uses this example with Rahab. In the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 2, you find the story of Rahab. So the people of Israel, they're moving out. They'd already been out of the land of Egypt. They spent time in the wilderness for 40 years, and now they're moving out the wilderness into the promised land, being led by Joshua. And as they're entering the promised land, they come across this city, this huge city that's heavily fortified, has huge, unscalable walls. And so Joshua sends two spies to the city to kind of scope things out. This lady named Rahab, she comes across these spies. And this is what she says. She says, we've heard about you the Israelites, we've heard about your God, how he's done miraculous things in Egypt and in the wilderness. I believe your God. Save me. And so you know how the story goes. She, her and whoever was inside her house were saved. But, but, but why is James bringing this up? Why is James bringing up this story? Her story is also found in Hebrews 11. Because her faith demonstrated a saving faith. Her faith in God proved true. It actually saved her life. And it saves our souls if we have that saving faith in Jesus Christ. So what? That's the question, right? So what? James is talking about all this stuff, about false faith, true faith, giving us examples of each. So what? Hear this. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to yourself each and every day. You know, it's funny, as believers, sometimes we think that our life is kind of like a timeline, right? So to the left of this timeline, it's, it's your life before Christ, living however you wanted. And then you come to Christ, you have, on this timeline you have the cross, you hear the gospel message, you believe, and then you move forward to the right, forgetting about the cross, forgetting about the gospel message, because the gospel message was only useful in bringing you to knowledge of God, knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
but it serves no purpose moving forward. Listen to this. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is just as powerful now as it was then. We need to constantly remind ourselves that we're only accepted by God through Jesus Christ, through his works. The only works that enters into this equation of salvation, faith, and works is the works of Jesus Christ. The life that he lived, the perfect life that he lived, the life that we should have lived, then also the works of Jesus Christ on the cross, the punishment that we should have had. The good news, even as believers, we take it with us each and every day. Because why? We sin. <laughs> we sin. And sometimes when we sin, we can fall into a rut thinking, man, man, I'm, I'm totally worthless. I'm helpless. You know, you know, when you sin, what is your first reaction? You know, when you curse somebody out, When you lie on your resume or taxes, when you look at whatever on the TV or computer screen, when you mistreat those around you, what is, what is your first reaction, right? That kind of first reaction kind of tells you about what you truly think about God. When you sin, do you, do you kind of like sulk back and run away? You, uh, man, I messed up. I need to pray X amount of times before I go to church. Or I can't even read the Bible. I need to spend time away from God in order for me to, you know, repent, and then I'll, then I'll come back to God. What is your first reaction? The gospel message shows that ultimate punishment, ultimate wrath on sin, had already fallen on Jesus Christ. So we have a direct access to God. We should never have to feel like we should run away from God. Run straight to, to him. I mean, heck, I know my son is uh, only about 10 months old, but as he grows up, if he ever makes a mistake in life, what do I want him to do? Hey, come to me. <laughs> do not ever run away. We have a relationship. I love you. Nothing can destroy that love that I have for you. Yes, I will discipline you, but it's, guess what? It's for your own good, right? Yeah. It's for your own benefit. It's not to hurt you. It's not to hurt you for what you've done. So sometimes, even in a Christian walk, we can look at, think of God that way. God, you're hurting me because you're, you're, you're being punitive. <laughs> yeah. You want to hit me over the head with a hammer. No, he doesn't want to do that. It's for your own good, to guide us, to direct us. That's the power of the gospel message. The beautiful thing about being in a relationship with God is exactly that. We have a relationship with God. We have a relationship. God has brought us into right relationship with himself. You kind of see this pattern all throughout scripture, right? God says, I've brought you into right relationship with me. Now continue to walk in this relationship with me. I mean, I've been talking about the Hebrews, the Israelites, so even when uh, God was giving the Ten Commandments in Exodus, Exodus 20, right, what, is, what does God say? You know, he starts off by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to the house of slavery. And then he gives the Ten Commandments, right? He, he starts off by saying, hey, I brought you out of this dark place. I provided for you. I brought you into right relationship with me. 
There's no, you didn't do a lick of that. So now that I've brought you, let's walk together in this life. Now the Apostle Paul, all throughout his writings, kind of writes like that. This is what God has done. He's brought you out of darkness and into marvelous light. I know that we're going through the book of Ephesians on our Wednesday night Bible study. It talks about that a lot, God bringing you out of darkness and into light. So therefore, continue to walk in that light. Probably repeating myself here, but in Ephesians 5 it says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you're a light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You don't do good works in order to obtain God's favor. It's impossible. It's futile. Listen to this passage. What the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. To walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh to set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The reason why I'm really hammering this home to those of you who call yourself believers, Christians, followers of Christ, is because, like I just said, the gospel message, the power of it, is still just as powerful for your life now. It conquers sin. It conquers doubt. It conquers your feeling of insecurity. But then, in, for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, even if you have those doubts, wrestle with questions. The best thing you do is run to God and not away from Him. You know, I've, I've mentioned my son Titus a number of times, but I'll be awful. You know, if this little guy, as he's grown up, developed a thought pattern that I must do certain things to earn my love. Or that because he's my son, he can live life however he wants because he knows that I love him. That's equally horrible. I wanted to have the faith, trust, freedom to remain in that relationship with me. That's what this passage about James is all about. God has brought you into right relationship with God, with himself, through Christ. Now continue to walk in that relationship. For those of you who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or for those of you who say that Jesus is Lord, but the fruit doesn't really show in your life. And, and you know that. I'm not talking about people who make mistakes. We all make mistakes. We all sin. But you know truly the fruit of your life shows no reflection of what you're saying. 
to other Christians or to, or to your own family. You know, you're putting on a front, you're putting on a face to others. Stop running away from him. Stop attacking him. Stop trying to get your life in order before you come to him. And stop trying to live life the way you want. Scripture says that now is a time for salvation. Now is the time. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've done through your Son, Jesus Christ. In the life that he lived, in the life that we should have lived, but then also for the punishment of sin on the cross. Just thank you for that example. May we continue to remind ourselves of the work of Christ. May we as believers encourage each other, walk along one another, and when we say, hey, I've been praying for you, we, we really mean it. You know, we're not just trying to say something that's encouraging. Yes, I have been praying for you. Yes, I know that you've been going through X, Y, and Z. How can I help? Lord, thank you for the example of so many saints, not only in the Bible, but those around us. Those around us that you place in your church, in your body of believers. And I pray for those who are in this building, in this room, who do not know you. I pray for their salvation. I pray that you'll open up their eyes, their heart, their ears to you. Reveal yourself to them. May we continue to rejoice in what you've done and rejoice in what you will do. In your holy name we pray. Amen.